All right, have a seat if you would. If you got a Bible, we're going to be in Luke chapter uh, 10. And I uh, want to welcome everybody today. My name is Jimmy Inman. I'm the teaching pastor here at True Life. If you don't know me, welcome everybody that's uh, online and remind you that if you want to communicate something to us, you can text 94000, uh, text uh, TLC decision. If you have some kind of spiritual decision or TLC guest, if you'd uh, like to let us know that you're, you're here, want to follow up in some way. Let me just kind of uh, remind us, maybe set the stage a little bit about uh, of where we are and where we're going. So we're doing a, a sermon series, kind of trying to uh, you know speak to just some of the things that are going on in our society that we're calling um, true justice in an unjust world. And the first week we talked about justice and the nature of God, how that just the very concept of justice just flows out of the fact that God is a just God. Uh, last week we talked about uh, justice and the worship of God, just with the idea that if we claim to be worshipers or, or followers of uh, Jesus, that uh, we are to live uh, just lives or really there's some hypocrisy in there. Today we're going to talk about justice and race. And the next couple of weeks, Lord willing, we're going to talk about justice and the government. And then in a couple of weeks, try to tie it together and talk about justice in society. But uh, as we begin to think about race, I want to begin uh, by showing you a couple of pictures just to maybe kind of help frame the conversation. Uh, the, the second one is... Um, just a well-known uh, picture from earlier this year. The first one is also a pretty well-known picture in history. Uh, I don't know if you've seen it or not, but it actually comes from the Civil War. And it, it's a picture of a slave whose name was Peter who escaped and made his way uh, into actually, you know, the Union Army, uh, you know, found his way into their kind of their lines and uh, actually became a Union soldier. But, uh, you know, this picture shows his scars from being beaten and whipped so severely. And as this picture circulated around the North, it really galvanized uh, opposition to slavery because, uh, you know, people saw that it wasn't something where, uh, you know, slaves were being tr treated benevolently or, or, or that kind of thing. Uh, the second picture, and, you know, I think everybody has seen this, but, uh, you know, it goes back to earlier uh, this summer and the picture of the police officer kneeling on George Floyd's uh, neck. And, um, you know, I, I really think that, that pictures like this both, you know, historically and currently uh, show why that, uh, you know, African-Americans are upset and are struggling. And, uh, you know, a, a lot of all these kind of debates are played out, you know, in social media and political circles and that kind of thing. Jake, you move on. But, um, you know, this affects people in, in, in real life. And, one of the things that I, I've mentioned that part of my response uh, to the George Floyd situation and other things that have happened this year are just, you know, talking to, uh, you know, African-Americans that I know and just kind of asking them their experience with this and how this is affecting them and that kind of thing. Because, uh, you know, it, you can explain away what politicians say maybe sometimes because it's distant. You can explain away what people say on uh, social media. But I mean, if you talk to real people that you know about how it affects their lives, it's kind of hard to, I think, ignore that. And, uh, you know, African-American moms will say things like, you know, I'm afraid for my sons. 
black men will tell you, you know, that they've been raised to respond a certain way if they get pulled over in a traffic stop, probably stuff that we've not had to think about. And, um, you know, I, I think about when I was in high school, and, you know, obviously I'm very white, but I think about, uh, you know, a fight that took place when I was in high school. Boys used to fight. It uh, wasn't smart to do it at school, but uh, boys used to fight and the world didn't come to an end. But uh, I, I think about a fight that took place at West High School, Morristown West, when I was in high school. It was about as fair of a fight as a fight could be. Um, it was between two football players. One was a linebacker, one was a running back. They're both great athletes. They were about the, the, the same size. I mean, they were both big. They're probably both about 6'2 and weighed, I don't know, I'd say somewhere between 200, 220 pounds, something like that. Uh, you know, fair fight, but it was a black kid and a white kid. And uh, black kid tore the white kid up. Um, and like I say, it was a fair fight, but the aftermath wasn't fair because um, the white kid's dad was very prominent in Morristown and the black kid got in a whole lot more trouble than the white kid did. Now, that may have not been because he was black. It may have just been because of the position, and I'm being a little vague on some of the details, that the white kid's dad uh, was in. But maybe that's an illustration of even what's been talked a lot about today in our society today with white privilege and those kind of things. I'm just saying, these are real things that have affected people. Um, you know, and I'm not saying we should live in the past, but if this has been kind of the history of your people and the treatment they've experienced, that's probably going to affect you somewhat. If things are still going on today, that's going to affect you. And so racism is a real issue. Now, at the same time as we begin this, I, I don't want to limit this to just a black-white kind of thing because if you go around the world, racism is going to get manifested in different ways. Uh, there's Jews and Arabs. Obviously, anti-Semitism has been a big issue, uh, you know, for thousands of years and in many different cultures. But, you know, if, if when we go to Honduras, the issue there is not black-white. The issue there is Honduran-Mexican. They don't like each other. Uh, you know, racism can manifest itself in a lot of different ways. In fact, Tim Keller's put it this way, and this kind of leads us to, to where we're going. He says, uh, next to sex and gender, the subject of race is the most discussed topic in our culture today. Storms of rhetoric and conflict swirl around it every day in politics, the arts, business, the media, and especially social media. It is natural and right for Christians to speak in these conversations out of their personal experience, but since we believe that the Bible has the right to interpret our experience and to critique every culture, we must look to it as our final authority. And that's what we're going to do today. And I really believe that that's a necessity for us to have any answers because, uh, you know, one of the issues societally today is when, when there's a belief that there's no absolute truth, everything's relative, so everything is perspective, then there's actually no authority, there's no truth source to actually arbitrate things when we see them differently. But that's what the Bible is for us because the Bible is the word of God and it's how the lordship of Christ is expressed. Um, maybe to say it in uh, maybe more of a blunt kind of way, the great African-American preacher Tony Evans puts it this way. He says there's two answers to every question, God's answer and the wrong answer. And so we want to move past the wrong answers. We want to find God's answer. And uh, there's 
multiple places that we could have gone to in, in, in Scripture. Uh, I've preached through the book of Philemon before, and that's certainly a good place uh, to go. But today we're going to go to what is, even for people who just know a little bit about the Bible, one of the things that they might know about, one of the most familiar passages of Scripture, and that is the parable of the Good Samaritan. And so we're going to look in Luke chapter 10, and and, and I'm not saying that uh, this story, this parable is expressly about racism. It's bigger than that. And we're going to look at it in, in, in a broader sense. But certainly the application of it and the details of it include Jesus very much speaking to the issue of racism. What I'm saying is, is if we take the truths that Jesus taught here and apply it to the subject of race, I believe that it will give us God's answer on the subject. It will give us the conviction that we're supposed to live by, the corresponding action that comes from it, and it will show us the heart that we're to have have that this will be able to flow out of. So Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 25, it says, and behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, tested Jesus. And let me just say up front, you know, lawyer is not uh, kind of lawyer we think about today. It's not uh, Dwayne Sloan before he became a judge. A uh, lawyer here is a scribe. It's referring to an expert in the Jewish law, not so much like, you know, an expert in, you know, constitutional law or whatever other kind of law that we would think about today. This guy lived in the Old Testament, basically. And he asked uh, Jesus a question. Uh, he says, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Life. But it says that he's testing him. So there's some kind of uh, you know, ulterior motive here. Maybe he's checking Jesus out as to what he would say. Would say. Sometimes they tried to, to trap him. But, but the context of all of this is this particular question, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And so we are going to talk about how this applies to racism, but I want you to see that this is ultimately a gospel question. How can I be right with God? How can I have eternal life? How can I go to heaven? But notice, and and Jesus did this a lot, and so uh, there's obviously then some wisdom in it. He answered a question with a question, actually two questions. Um, This is a good parenting strategy sometimes. Uh, He says, what's written in the law? What's your reading of it? In other words, He's meeting this guy where he is. He was an expert in the law. So he says, what's the law say? And how do you understand what it, what it says? What's your interpretation of it? And so this lawyer answers and says, uh, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And so this man being an expert in the law, he quotes the, the law. The first part of this, you know, love the Lord your God, that's Deuteronomy 6.5. The second part of this, love your neighbor as yourself, that's Leviticus 19.18. And so he, uh, he, he, so far so good. He, he says, this is what the law says. You know, this is what, you know, what we would call the Old Testament uh, says. Uh, and so Jesus said, you have answered rightly. This is, that's good, right? When Jesus says you gave the right answer. But then he adds something else in. He says, do this and live. Uh-oh. Has anybody, including this man, ever loved the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength? 
Has anybody ever always loved their neighbor as himself or herself? No. I mean, you know, this corresponds with the two tablets of the Ten Commandments, you know. Put God before everything else. Don't have any idols. Don't take God's uh, name in, in, in vain. Um, we're all guilty. The second part corresponds with the second tablet. You know, don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't bear false witness. Don't steal. Don't covet. Of course, Jesus took that and he applied it to the heart. We're all guilty. You see, the law doesn't justify us. The law condemns us. Do this and you will live. But the corollary to that is don't do this and you will die. The law promises blessings for obedience Curses for disobedience. Since we've not lived this out, we're under the curse. The wages of sin is death. We're spiritual death. And so just file that away, though, because we're going uh, to come back to that at the end. Now, next verse. And, and this shows I'm not just speculating here, but uh, that this is actually what's going on in this man's mind. But he says he wanting to justify himself. Shocking, I know, a lawyer trying to justify himself, but uh, that, that's, that's what he was doing. But why do you justify, try to justify yourself? What would cause you to do that? Okay, you feel guilty? Because you're wrong, right? If you think you're right, there's no reason to justify yourself. Jesus, in these two questions in one statement, had just exposed his heart. He, he, he asked two questions, took him to the Bible. He told him what the Bible says. Jesus said, do this and live. And this guy's like, I'm in trouble. <laughs> and, and that's why there always has to be law before there's gospel. And whenever we go to the law, it exposes their hearts and we know that we're in trouble. At that point, we can choose to try to justify ourselves or we can be justified by Jesus. This guy's trying to justify himself. And so he asked Jesus another question. And like I say, we're going to circle back around to that at the end, but let's get into the parable itself. The parable, the context of the parable is this question that he asked here. Who is my neighbor? And remember, a parable has one main point. There can be some other applications that can be drawn from it, but there's one main point. And the main point here is going to be Jesus answering this man's question. Who is my neighbor? And just a little more background, a lot of the Jewish scribes, they would teach, uh, based on Leviticus 19.18, that my fellow Israelite, that's my neighbor. But they would conveniently ignore, I think it's verse 34, the verse thir either 34 or 35 of that chapter, that says we're to also to love the stranger, as ourselves as well. Basically, it's not it's saying don't make a distinction Love everybody. And, but, you know, who is my neighbor? Maybe he was thinking this. Well, there's cer certain people that I can love, but certain people I don't really have to love. Now, don't we do that sometimes? I mean, this person's mistreated me. I don't have to love this person. Or basically racism is, and, um, you know, it, it can certainly go beyond racism, but let's just talk about racism. Racism basically says... I don't have to love this person because of their outward characteristics. This person is other than me. This person is less than me in, in, in some way. But here's how Jesus responded to this question. Who is my neighbor? 
He didn't just say everybody is your neighbor, but he showed him that everybody is your neighbor. And by extension, that if everybody's your neighbor, everybody's to be loved based on what Leviticus 19, 18 says. It says a certain man went down from Jerusalem uh, to, to Jericho and fell among thieves. And this was a, a long road. It was a dangerous road. And it says they stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed him, leaving him half dead. That's the, the situation that this man uh, found himself in. And, and it says, now by chance, a certain priest came down that road. Maybe he had been in Jerusalem. He had discharged his duties. He was headed back home. But when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So if you, if you could almost imagine maybe like Bob Milliken's laying in a ditch half dead and, and I, I walk by or I drive by and I just ignore him and I keep going. But then it says, likewise, uh, a Levite, and the Levites were kind of the assistants to the priests, uh, kind of the worship leaders in, in some context. It says when he arrived at the place, he came and he actually looked at him. And think about that. He came and looked at him. But then he passed by on the other side. So that'd be like, you know, I pass by Bob and then Shane comes by and, and he passes by Bob. But then Jesus says, and this is like the twist in the story. He says, but a certain Samaritan. Now we need a little more background here because, uh, you know, when we think about the racial conflict of that day, it was between Jews and Samaritans. They hated each other. The Samaritans had come, it goes back uh, to like 722 BC when Israel was conquered. Uh, they were brought into captivity and they entered, ended up intermarrying with the Assyrians, with the Gentiles. The Samaritans came out of that. So the Jews uh, considered them to be half-breeds. They had their own place of worship on Mount Gerizim instead of in Jerusalem. And they despised each other. Remember in John 4 when Jesus, and we'll get to this, encountered the woman of the Samaritan well. Uh, normally we know that the, the Jews, instead of walking a straight line from Judea to Galilee, would go around Samaria. They would inconvenience themselves to avoid the Samaritans. Uh, that's racism. They, they, they hated each other. But now Jesus is introducing this Samaritan as the hero of the story. It would have blown this guy's mind. It says a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was. And when he saw him, he didn't just pass on by, but he had compassion on him. And you know, compassion is really love and action. Love's a verb. And so it says, so he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and he set him on his own animal, brought him to an end, end and he took care of him. So you know, he got involved. He, he put himself out there. He sacrificed. He, he gave. He, he walked. We don't know how far this was, but, but, but he walked. And, and so this guy could ride on his animal. He says on the next day when he departed, he took out two denarii. It cost him money, two days wages, roughly. Gave them to the innkeeper and said to him, take care of him. And whatever more you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. So, Jesus tells a story to make this point, and he makes the Samaritan the hero of the story. So then he turns it back around, and he asks another question. He says, so which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And isn't the answer obvious? So Jesus had kind of trapped this lawyer 
Because even lawyers can't stand before the righteous judge of all the universe and justify themselves. He had trapped him with this, the logic of this story and, and, and who, who was neighbor to him and fell among thieves? So this man said, he who showed mercy on him. And then Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. And that's what he says to us today. So what's the point of the parable? What's the conviction that should drive our lives, the conviction that would drive out racism? It's very simply this. Everybody is our neighbor, so everybody is to be loved. I mean, that's what Jesus is saying in this story. Everybody is our neighbor, so everybody is to be loved. Uh, There's a U2 song that has in it a, a line that says, there is no them, there's only us. There is no them, there's only us. What's Jesus saying here? He's saying there is no them, there's only us. What does racism say? Racism says there's us and there's them. And that's where the divisions between people come in. Jesus is saying everybody's their neighbor. There's only us. We're all in this together. So everybody is to be loved. Rick Warren puts it this way. Racism is not a skin problem. It's a sin problem. Why? Because everybody is their neighbor. There's no them. There's only us. So everybody is to be loved. Now, I kind of want to just diverge just from this parable uh, for a few minutes and kind of just add to what we see in this parable. And, and beyond what Jesus teaches here, this principle that everybody is their neighbor, so everybody's to be loved, I want to give you nine other uh, biblical reasons that racism is a sin. And, and these are in your notes that are, that are on the app, but, uh, and there's more that could be said about this. But for me, this is kind of like my top 10 reasons to believe biblically that racism is a sin issue and not a skin issue, okay? So, the Bible teaches us that we are created in the image of God. Genesis 1, 27. So God created man, mankind, his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. That means if we're all created in the image of God, that we are all equal and that everybody is inherently from the womb. This is part of the reason why abortion is wrong too. Everybody inherently from the womb by virtue of having a soul being made in the image of God has inherent value, worth, dignity, and is to be accepted and loved instead of rejected. Think about it this way. Tim Keller puts it this way. In thinking about the Trinity, that God is three in one, that God, there's one God, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He says that the triune God is unity in diversity and diversity in unity. And because God is three in one and because both the creation, the creation meaning the created universe and people are a reflection of the triune God, this means that God has designed everything in the world, including humanity and our interpersonal relationships to be unity in diversity and diversity in unity because we're made in his image. So, Racism is wrong simply because we're made in the image of God, but even beyond that, second biblical reason I would give is that we are one race. And, and, and this is where, this, this is a place where science and the Bible converge. 
You know, I, I believe that for the most part, race is a societal construct. Um, I mean, I understand, you know, there's differences and there's ethnic differences and we're different shades of melanin and that kind of thing. But you know, 99.9%, we have the same DNA. Why is that? Well, it's because the Bible says, Acts 17, 26, he is made from one blood. We all go back to Adam and Eve. Every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. That means we're all related. And it also means that we were born, when we were born, where we were born, to whom we were born, by the sovereign plan and purpose and will of God, which would mean by extension that whatever our external characteristics are is also a part of the plan of God. We're one race made in the image of God. Number three, the Bible's very clear that we cannot love God without also correspondingly loving others. 1 John 4.20 says, If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? Now, do you hear this? It's not my words, it's the word of God, and that if someone claims to love God and hates other people, God says they're lying about their love for him. That's what God says about it. Number four, just think about the example of Jesus. And the particular example that, that I picked out here is the example of Jesus with the Samaritan woman at the well. Uh, you know, John 4, verse 4 says he needed to go through Samaria. Like I said, you know, the, the cultural thing to do as a Jew would have been to avoid Samaria, go around Samaria. Jesus needed to go through Samaria, though. Why? So he could encounter uh, this lady. And then, you know, he, he starts talking to this woman uh, who came to draw water. Verse 7, Jesus said to her, give me a drink. And um, then in verse 9, this woman, this, this shows how uh, unique and countercultural what he was doing was. Uh, she said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman, because Jews have no dealings with Samaritans? But Jesus didn't go along with the cultural narrative of his day. He did the will of his father. And we're following his example when we meet people where they are, love people where they are, when we don't give in uh, to racism, but uh, you know, we do what's right and treat people in the right way. Here's a fifth reason, and that is just simply the golden rule. What's the golden rule that our parents taught us when little kids do unto others, you'd have them do unto you? Uh, uh, Jesus said, Matthew 7, 12, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Treat other people the way that you want to be treated. Well, uh, you know, nobody wants to be treated uh, wrongly, badly, wants to be discriminated against, uh, wants to be persecuted, wants to be hurt. Nobody wants to experience what those two men experienced in those two pictures uh, that we looked at at the beginning of this message. So how can we justify then treating other people that way? Number six, the Bible says it's a sin to show partiality. 
The Bible says God's no respecter of persons. And once again, this goes well beyond race. The particular biblical example here has more to do with how uh, you treat people in, in different socioeconomic situations. But James 2, 1 through 4 says, My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. He gives an example. He says, For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings and fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and say to him, You sit here in a good place and say to the poor man, you stand here, you stand there, sit at my footstool. Have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? And so he's saying if we accept some people and reject others based on outward characteristics, he says you become judges with evil thoughts. He's saying this is sinful. But then number seven, and maybe this is the ultimate reason, and um, it's Ephesians 2, 11 through 18, but I, it's the reconciliation that's brought about by the cross of Christ. And, and I, and I want to say this, um, you know, in, in this message, trying to address, some, or this series, trying to address some things that are going on in our society, in a couple of weeks, planning on to really get even into more of the particulars of that after we talk about government next week. But I want you to understand, I mean, I, I'm no... Uh, mayor or uh, councilman or governor or anything like that. I'm not a politician. I'm a preacher and I'm a pastor. And my primary concern is the church of Christ, particularly True Life Church. And so let me just say something to the church that we need to understand. The church does not need to strive for racial reconciliation in the sense of trying to acquire it. The church needs to live out the racial reconciliation that Jesus already acquired on the cross. Let me say that again. The church does not need to strive to acquire racial reconciliation. We need to live out the racial reconciliation that Jesus already acquired on the cross. That's what these verses tell us. Let's just read these verses in Ephesians 2. He says, therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. He, he's writing to a primarily Gentile audience uh, there in Ephesus, but he's saying, uh, you know, it, it, here's this division, Jews and Gentiles separated from one another, but ultimately separated from God before they met Christ. But then notice verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, brought near to God, but it doesn't stop there. For he himself is our peace who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall uh, of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. And that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. Th think of it this way. Somebody uh, mentioned this to me after the first service, how he had been to Turkey. And he'd seen a museum in a museum that, that, that had a, a plaque, an inscription, um, 
that used to be in the temple courts. And, you know, in the temple courts, there was like the, the, there was the court of women, there's the court of Gentiles, court of Jews, then, uh, you know, the inner court that the priest could go into, and then there's the Holy of Holies. But there's an, there was an inscription there that where, uh, you know, from the court of Gentiles going into the court of the Jews, where a Gentile couldn't pass by there, and it said, if you did, basically, you will be killed. You understand, on the cross... Jesus removed all that. There's no barrier to us as Gentiles coming to God because he has reconciled us to the Father through the blood of his cross. He's made peace. He's abolished the enmity. And now we can come into the very holy of holies, the very presence of God through the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. But in abolishing that, he not only abolished the enmity between us and God, the division, the separation between us and the Father, he also abolished the enmity, the separation, the division between Jew and Gentile, where now we are reconciled not just to the Father, but we're reconciled to each other. We're brought into the church as one new humanity, the people of God, brothers and sisters of Christ, apart from race or any other external characteristic, one in Christ. We have been reconciled to God and to each other. And so through the cross, there is no actual racial division in the church. We've been reconciled together. Now he's saying, live like that. Live as one in him. And see, what then flows out of that in verse 19 of Ephesians 2, and and this will be the eighth reason, is the nature of the church on earth. There's a therefore there. It says, now therefore, you're no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Jew or Gentile, whatever race, nationality, ethnicity, socioeconomic class, educational level, wherever we live, whatever we have or don't have, we're members of the household of God. We're family. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. He says, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you're also being built together for a dwelling place of God in the spirit. Think about it. The church is the dwelling place of God. God doesn't want to dwell somewhere where people are divided and hating each other and looking down on other people. But then the last reason is the eternal makeup of the church in heaven. Revelation chapter seven, after these things, I looked and behold a great multitude, which no one could number of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues. Did you hear that? All nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues. There's no racism in heaven. Standing before the throne and before the lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice saying, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. Jesus is telling us in Luke chapter 10, the Bible is consistently telling us that everybody is our neighbor. We're to love everyone. But in the church, we're not just neighbors. We're family. We're brothers and sisters united together by the cross. He's saying live like it. And so how do we live like it? Like I said, everything starts with conviction, and this is the conviction that everybody's our neighbor, so we're to love everybody like our neighbor. There is no them, there's only us, but then the way we live this conviction out is through love, and real love is expressed by sacrificial actions. 
love expressed by sacrificial actions. The Jewish religious leaders could have probably preached about love. I'm sure that they could have expounded Deuteronomy 6 or Leviticus 19, but they didn't show it. How often is that us? How often is that me? You know, Jesus um, kind of turned this man's questions around and used this parable of the Good Samaritan to show him that the neighbor is the one who shows mercy and he told him to go and do likewise and he tells us to go and do likewise. And see, seeing everybody as our neighbor eliminates racist beliefs, but then loving everyone as our neighbor both eliminates racist, racist actions and actually begins to make a positive difference in beginning to overcome it. Because I think sometimes what's hard in, um, you know, us talking about this is, you know, you see all these things in the media. You see people lobbing grenades back and forth at each other on social media. And, and, and you see just maybe how big the problems can be sometimes. Like, you know, how do we fix it? How, how can I make a difference? What do I do? And I think sometimes we forget that change comes by us being the change and us starting where we are and just with the people in our lives, beginning to love them, beginning to neighbor them, so to speak, in the way that this Samaritan did, just to love and to serve and to care and to make a difference. And maybe some of it is just going out of our way to help somebody who's different than us. Maybe that's a color difference. Maybe that's an economic difference. Uh, whatever kind of difference that it is. But, well, I, I think this story is a great example. Um, you know, I've talked about having conversations with people, mostly people that I know, but this is a conversation with somebody I, I met at the gym and kind of, uh, you know, kind of developing a relationship with. You may know, some of you may know him. His name's Ricky Upton, African-American man, works at the community center. And, uh, you know, I, I just asked him one day when we were talking, like, what's your experience been uh, with this? How's this affected you? And uh, he talked about one of his first um, childhood memories being having to jump in a ditch one time because some people from the KKK were shooting guns in, in, in the area. But then he also talked about when he was a little bit older and he didn't have a dad in the picture and he tried out for Little League and he was like the last person drafted. He only made a team because everybody made a team. You know, that's how uh, Little League works. And he said he could not play at, at all. Uh, didn't even really have even what he needed. And, you know, the first year he sat on the bench and finally the coach put him in for like an inning the last game of the year. But that coach named Ben Ashley, a white man, kind of took him under his wing and he began to, you know, get him some equipment, you know, glove, cleats, that kind of thing. And he began to work with him. And he, uh, you know, began to practice with him and just kind of, you know, was there for him and just kind of, you know, took him under his uh, wing. And um, by the time he got through with Little League, he was an all-star. And he ended up playing college football. One person taking somebody under his wing. That made a difference in his life. Enough of that happens, it's going to make a difference. 
And he said something to me in that conversation I think is very profound when you think about racism. He said, I've had a problem with white persons, but I don't have a problem with white people. And you see, that's when, it, when something begins to become racism. It's when you turn the singular into the plural. I mean, there's bad white people. And maybe some black people think all white people are bad because of that, but that's when it becomes prejudice. Or, you know, there's good people, black people, there's bad black people. But when you begin to categorize, stereotype everybody, that's where racism begins to set in. You know what Martin Luther King say? We want to be judged not by the color of our skin, but by the content of our character. Martin Luther King Jr. said something else, and I think this fits in our society today, and it fits with what I'm talking about here. He said the ultimate weakness of violence is that it is a descending spiral begetting the very thing it seeks to destroy. Instead of diminishing evil, it multiplies it. Through violence, you may murder the liar, but you cannot murder the lie nor establish the truth. Through violence, you may murder the hater, but you do not murder hate. In fact, violence merely increases hate. Returning violence for violence multiplies violence, adding deeper darkness to a night already devoid of stars. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. As the church of Jesus Christ, that's what we're called to do. We're called to drive out hate with love by loving our neighbor as ourself, understanding that everybody is our neighbor. But then last thing, we need to remember that this love comes from a heart changed by Jesus. Once again, it would be the height of moralism to go say, don't be a racist. Or to say, Go love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and, and mind. Go love your neighbor a, a, as yourself because we've already established that all of us have failed to do that. And so the solution is not to try harder to do that. The solution is to have a heart change. The law doesn't justify us. The law condemns us. I, I'd be a hypocrite by going saying, just go love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength because I don't do that. Or say, just go love your neighbors yourself because I certainly not always love my neighbor as myself. So ultimately, what we need to see is that this is a gospel issue. That the law condemns us. The law shows us that we fall short. But that the good news is that Jesus, in a sense, and like I said, this is not the main point of the, the parable. I'm not trying to allegorize it, but I am trying to apply it to the gospel. There is a sense in which Jesus is the ultimate good Samaritan. I mean, think about it. Sin has wrecked our lives. We're lying in the ditch, spiritually dead, beaten up, struggling, helpless and hopeless. There's nothing we can do to save ourselves. Religion has passed by on the other side. Religion is powerless to save us. But Jesus, Jesus came from heaven to earth. 
Jesus not only loved uh, his neighbor as himself, he came into a completely different culture, a completely different environment, and he just doesn't love his neighbor. He loved his enemies because our sin has placed us in enmity with God. This is the gospel that, that Jesus, the Son of God, came to earth, took on flesh. He came to rescue us. He came to pull us out of that ditch of sin, and he did it sacrificially at a great cost to himself. He paid the price of sacrificing his life so that we could be forgiven. And he poured the wine of his blood upon us to forgive us of, his, of our sins and gave us the oil of the Holy Spirit to transform our hearts, to make us new. And so all, all of us, for every one of us who have failed to love God as we should and have at times failed to love others as we should, who stand condemned under the law, and we can't justify ourselves, can now be justified by the finished work of Jesus Christ. What we talked about in the first message, Romans 3, God justly justifies those who place their faith in Jesus Christ. That through the cross, we're reconciled to God. Through the cross, we're reconciled to each other and we're made new and we're given new hearts and, and not us going and trying to do it on our own, but Jesus who is love now living through us as he changes us from the inside out, we can go and compassionately and sacrificially love other people, whether they're like us or whether they're different from us. That's how this is going to change. It's through the cross of Christ and it's through Jesus living through us. Robin, my wife, when she turned 18, was going to have a big 18th birthday party. And uh, her dad asked her who was coming to it. And um, she kind of told him about it, and uh, some of them were African-Americans. And he said, you can't have that at my house. So um, they moved the party to Mr. Gaddy's Pizza. And some of you remember Mr. Gaddy's uh, Pizza, if you've been around Morristown for a while. Anybody remember that? Uh, we used to go there to play at Galaga. Anybody else do that? Rusty Arwood was like the Galaga champion of Morristown, Tennessee, him and his brother. Uh, but um, th they moved it there. And then uh, day of, he said, I'm not going to pay for it uh, because um, there's going to be black people at it. Um, her mom came through and paid for it. I mean, you could say her dad was a racist. Uh, she's not. One of the things she's always tried to teach our kids not to see color. What's the difference? The difference is Jesus. The difference is living according to the word of God and what we've talked about in, in this message. Listen, we don't have to be stuck in our heritage. We don't have to be stuck in our Southern culture. Jesus didn't follow the culture of his day. He treated people in the way that his father wanted him to. How does it, our father want us to treat people? Love our neighbor as ourself and know that everybody is our neighbor. And by the love of God that's been poured out in our hearts through the presence of the Holy Spirit by our Savior Jesus Christ, that love can flow through us to others. And if we say that we believe the Bible, if we say that we believe the gospel, if we say that we are the church of Jesus Christ, we have to be, in light of the cross, we have to be part of the solution and not part of the problem. And every one of us can start where we are with who we know, and we can make a difference in somebody's life through the love of Christ being poured out through us, being demonstrated through us, 
we can make a difference where we are. Who is neighbor? The one who showed mercy. What did Jesus say? Go and do likewise. That's what he says to us because he showed us mercy.